Yeah. Jay. Right, right, right. He's going to text us. Yeah. He's going to close it. He's watching. 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 Two, one. Cool. Beautiful. All right, gang. Here we go. Another delicious episode of Silicon Zombies. My name is Nick Larson. It's Tuesday, December 20th. And this is where you get the best brains in the Bay and beyond. And we're super stoked to be talking about sales growth, specifically in the B2B space. And we've got some wonderful guests, Mr. Chris Shang, who's worked with Marker Capital and Andreessen. We've got Peter Wang, who's the Sultan of social media and runs TikTok for Intel. And then we've got Mark Tatargiani, Senior Vice President from Pacific Western Bank. So super excited to have everybody here today. And we're going to learn a ton. We're going to have fun doing it. And we're also going to, uh, to have Rodolfo. Uh, Rodolfo, do you want to share a little bit about what you and the team at Nicodex are doing real quick? Yeah, for sure. Um... I wanna I'm gonna talk to us about what we do is we have business to grow the software development teams here in Mexico. For example, if you're tired to getting ready to start working with your team at 9 p.m. or if your team takes something to will done by tomorrow, that's a week, and this still needs to be done. Well, this is why we are here to tell you you are not alone. It is a pool of skills, engineers, and creatives in your same time zone. And I know it's pretty hard to you um, to have your team outside where you're located, but trusting the results, we had business go from one to 50 developers and now they are a unicorn. Come up now us and we will be so happy to show you how we can make it work. How is my message? And you say you hear us from Silicon Zombie, you will receive a 10% of discount on your first month. Reach out at necodex.com. Very cool. Thank you, Rodolfo. Uh, that's nicodex.com, N-E-C-O-D-E-X. They've done some amazing work for Matt Lesnar at Pazinda, and then also some folks uh, for Danny Skowski at SidePocket as well. So if you're looking to build a product, make sure to contact nicodex.com. Um, so let's just get, let's just jump into it. Chris, you've got a, a really impressive background uh, in the growth space, specifically B2B software. You build channels, you drive revenue, implement technology and, and processes. How do you approach uh, growth, and uh, and what's your what's your background? Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I would say it's a long-winded conversation about my background. Um, started off in finance, uh, ended up doing uh, work, did a one eighty, ended up in like movie and TV film production for a number of years, um, and then ultimately got involved in my first startup probably about eight nine years ago, and that was with a couple of buddies of mine from high school who, I don't know, probably saw like I was fairly directionless at that point in time. Um, and yeah, it got me involved into that. And, and, and I found something that I was actually really excited and passionate about, which was just building process, building a sales motion uh, before I really even knew what the hell that meant. Um, you know, fast forward to today. And I guess, you know, I've really kind of carved out a niche for myself in the B2B space and, uh, became a growth expert and really trying to figure out, you know, how to take things to market. Um, I think just philosophically, I, I don't try to over, overthink it and just keep it pretty straightforward and basic. Fantastic. You know, I, I'm excited about the conversation today because uh, um, coaching around sales and implementing technology and processes uh, also one of uh, Coach Mark's expertise as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about your, your background in the space? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, I've been in sales and business development for about uh, 20 plus years at this point. My background before that was as an English teacher, uh, and that really always informed how I approach sales and particularly around storytelling and asking questions and, and listening to answers. So, you know, I've, I've had roles where I've been with a company on building a, a sales force to go up through an IPO. I've done coaching with startup uh, entrepreneurs, and I'm currently working in business development for Pacific Western Bank 
and uh, running business development efforts on the West Coast, primarily here in uh, Silicon Valley and, and down in Los Angeles as well. And uh, we are a bank for VC-backed startups and the investors who uh, invest in them. I'm excited to learn uh, some more from, uh, from Chris today. It's exciting to see you. So, you know, as a as a ex English teacher, when you're like, let's say, looking over like startup pitches, do you have the urge to like bust out your red pen and like, oh my god, what's <laughs> going on? That's a Jared. Always, <laughs> always, you know, it's 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 kind of like when somebody has something in your in their teeth, and you tell them it's a little bit embarrassing at first, but you're glad that they told you, right? <laughs> I feel the same way about grammar mistakes. Yeah. So. Well, it's good that like a lot of high school and even college students, they their most impactful teachers have always been English teachers. Well, you know, we get an opportunity in class to talk about a lot of different things, you know. True. I mean, we're not just saying, you know, hey, this is how this equation is solved, but what do you think about this? How do you interpret this mm -hmm. poem? You know, what does Charles Bukowski mean to you, right? Yeah. So, um, fun stuff to, to Let me get Google into. who Charles Bukowski is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to be put in detention by your <laughs> Charles Bukowski is the king, hey, king of the... <laughs> He's the king of the uh, deadbeat LA poets, man. He's 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 a classic. That's right. That's right. So uh, so Chris, you, you didn't start off working with the the all stars in this space and helping their portfolio companies scale. In fact, you, you started off uh, in doing calls at a, at a cancer research center, if I'm not mistaken. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a little bit more gracious than I would even say it. I mean, I was literally just answering phones at a cancer care clinic, like a switchboard for 12 bucks an hour. Uh, like in my early to mid 30s, when I was doing that first startup, um, just basically trying to cover basic expenses and bills while you're trying to get uh, a business off the ground. Um, you know, we were completely bootstrapped at the time. It was a online tuxedo rental company. And uh, we ended up taking it to like a quarter million in revenue in less than a year's time. But to, to do that is a, was a very arduous task. Um, and ultimately, you know, the other founding team ended up getting burnt out and uh, I really didn't have anything to fall back on. So I stuck around with startups and found my way into growth marketing, um, working with a few other direct to consumer brands at the time, uh, but then ended up doing consulting and then outgrew that started an agency outgrew that and then uh, wanted to figure out, you know, how can I really scale this? Did I want to scale a service-based business, which is extremely difficult? Or do, did I want to build something that, that was uh, a little bit more scalable? Um, and that was what led me to building Leader Pro, which is uh, what I'm a founder and CEO of it now today. Yeah. So, Chris, um, I heard you, uh, you have some experience in growth marketing. Uh, as a growth marketer to another I wonder, oh, I love answer, asking this question. How do you, what's the, do you think is the difference then between growth marketing and performance marketing? I mean, growth marketing to me is, is like the hybrid, right? And I focus primarily on like on outbound campaigns, right? I think um, when you look at paid channels or just performance marketing in general, uh, I, we've, I've seen just so many companies live and die by algorithms where like something just gets shifted within, you know, a month and uh, whatever their, you know, acquisition cost or use, you know, whatever it's user or customer uh, can skyrocket, you know, five to 10 X um, as a result of that. Right. So um, I think you can learn and iterate a lot quicker through outbound, whether it's through multiple channels, um, which is kind of how I think about it. It's not just doing like emails or LinkedIn DMS, which we all know is really kind of a crowded and very noisy channels, but it's leveraging other channels that people don't tend to think about everything from direct mail to ringless voicemail, SMS, um, email, Facebook DMs, et cetera, all incorporated into like a single sequence that's really like sales intensive over like a one to two week period. Um, and then the idea is to give that cohort a break, um, doing some thought leadership, retargeting on that front, more leveraging like paid and performance marketing as like a billboard to generate brand equity, brand awareness and, and brand trust. Um, I joke about this, but it's, it's, I think it's pretty true, which is like if I might have the cure for cancer, but if I'm trying to like sell that through email and LinkedIn, ultimately, <laughs> it's really yeah, going to be. You, you want to double click a little bit on, on the early growth in this? Yeah, no, I, I was curious to, to flash back to your tuxedo business there, right? And here you are, you know, young guy, bang, what was outreach then? And who, who, who were you reaching out to? And, and 
what was the messaging and, and how did it evolve at that time? And, and I know just from listening to a little bit of your stuff that being scrappy is a big part of what you talk about. So how did that come into play when you were selling tuxes? Yeah, man, uh, that was rough. Um, it was a weird time because there was like, there's three, there's three, three companies doing the online tuxedo thing. And we all started around the same time. Um, there was the Black Tux, which was a Munker company. Uh, then there was Menguin, which ended up uh, selling to the founder of Men's Warehouse um, for like 25 million. And then there was us, which ultimately we didn't have the, the wherewithal to kind of like outlast the rest. And we did end up exiting to kind of our, our, our uh, white label distributor, but that was kind of the scenario for us. Um, you know, how we looked at it was there's there's really like two places where people start running tuxedos, right? It's like for weddings and then for proms and formals and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the the two other competitors that we we're looking at was really trying to carve out their niche in the wedding space. And we decided to go against the grain and carve out our, carve out our niche in the, in the high school space and focus on like proms and formals and such. Uh, when you think about it, like at the time I was like going through and, and preparing for my own wedding. And I was like at a um, tux rental shop, brick and mortar place. And there was a guy that was running in with his best man the day of his wedding. And the best man's like pants were at his knees. Like, <laughs> and so it was a very real problem that I was like, how the hell is this happening? And how do they not have a resolution for this? You know, and the guy had to basically go out and, and on the day of his wedding, the, the, the groom had to go find a pair of pants that matched the tuxedo jacket, you know, and that was ridiculous to me. Um, and so when a couple of buddies of mine, originally they wanted to do like a custom suit company, uh, but then came to me and we ultimately decided like, all right, custom suits probably isn't the best place, but unlike tuxedo rentals was like a way to kind of disrupt a traditionally like old space. And so literally it was ground and pound at that point in time. It was like going out and build like a biz dev type of relationship, which was ultimately with the student activities director at a high school. We focused on our alma mater of Palos Verdes Peninsula and got uh, that school on board. And we ended up focusing on all the schools within a 10 mile radius of that school to leverage that social proof. Uh, and then ultimately it was me like, and a couple of the other guys driving up and down the West Coast, trying to onboard as many high schools as possible in as short of amount of time as possible. Uh, and we ended up converting about a third of the high schools in California in like about six months time. And that was like our go-to-market motion. Um, and that's, that was the scrappiness of it all. I ended up getting shingles from that experience <laughs> due to the stress of like running all around while trying to operate a business and also trying to sell you know, these, these schools. Um, also, you know, what we ended up doing was having like an outsourced team of like local hires that were going to these schools to do the actual measuring. So that was the hardest thing to do is capturing the, the measurement details of the students. Um, so we had to train them on how to do that, store all the, the measurements digitally. And then that's how they were able to check out with one click. Interesting. I bet you wish you had uh, TikTok as a channel back then. Huh? That would have worked, <laughs> the, worked for the high schoolers. <laughs> Yeah, man. I mean, a lot of channels with that kind of like virality didn't really exist at that time. This we're talking about right, eight right. years ago. It's like really hard to crack that. Everybody was on the performance marketing front. Um, we didn't really know how to do it right. So that's kind of how we ended up where we are. Um, we ran a cash for schools program. We essentially gave every school like a digital storefront, which they could circulate with their students. And we just had these like, you know, days that we would come on campus one to two weeks in advance of uh of their prom or formals and the idea was to get this like cradle to grave mentality which is like you know when i was looking at where i was going to rent a tuxedo from from my wedding it was like going back to you know where i was renting from high school like that's essentially how i did it chris what year was this this was like eight, seven eight years ago so we're talking about like 20 2011 2012 maybe 2010 oh yeah, that, that was, I guess, the, the closest thing to a TikTok would be Instagram at that point. Yeah. So when, when, we're, when we're thinking about a, a finely tuned sales engine, it sounds like you were able to hack a pretty unique channel and, and have a ton of conversion, but that's in the consumer space. Yeah. Um, your focus now is in the B2B space. So yeah. 
help help the uh, the founders in our community understand maybe some best practices or some some eureka moments that you had around hacking distribution yeah i mean when we look at the, that tuck space right like it was really kind of like a b2b to c model right we were we're partnering with the school we had to sell the school and then we would get access to the students that would then be our our, our end user or end customer so, you know, I think like that mindset of like a one to many kind of like made a lot more sense to me. Um, I think like when you look at direct to consumer, it's, it's rapid experimentation over a long period of time. Um, and I think the ROI to kind of getting to the stuff that's going to work is longer winded. And for whatever reason, personally, I just don't think I have the patience or the wherewithal to wait that long versus in the B2B space, you could literally send out like cohorts of, a hundred email outreaches a day, right? And then very quickly iterate on what actually works and what doesn't. So it starts on the basic level of that front is just kind of like how I looked at it. And then with growth, like it's it's pulling three levers, right? There's three variables, which is to me, channel, messaging, and then audience. And so the best, you're, you're, you're constantly seeking to optimize the best combination of all three. Um, and that's really the shorthand of it. We can dive into like how I look at it a little bit more holistically, but um, yeah, but that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's dive a little bit deeper, if uh, if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. So, like I like I mentioned about the was well, just starting off with channels, for example, right? Like, if we did a survey, and I've done this before, like at the LA Tech Week conference and, and Saster, etc. But you know, anytime that you pull a group of like B two B founders, ninety nine percent will raise their hands as email and LinkedIn as their go their go to channels, right? And when I ask about things like ringless voicemail or SMS or even direct mail, like the hands just dwindle and you start seeing it's like really like 10, maybe 15%. Um, and when you think about it, right, like it makes a ton of sense. You have like these companies like ZoomInfo, um, Seamless, Clearbit, et cetera, these contact databases that are growing exponentially, but so is the SaaS space. And so ultimately, you know, you're not now just competing with your direct competitors for that attention, but you're actually in reality competing with like eight to 10 other like B2B software categories or services and all the companies that operate in there for the same attention if you're just using those channels. So how I think about it is like, how do we leverage multiple channels similar to like a direct to consumer experience, right? As a consumer, we would never buy a pair of athletic shoes from a no-name brand just through email alone or through LinkedIn DMs alone, right? Like it just wouldn't work. And in the B2B space, we're still selling to humans. So I try to think about whatever we're doing through a sequencing um, outreach or different type of touch points is how do we leverage multiple channels to create that brand awareness or that brand trust? Because again, going back to that cancer you know, analogy, it's like you, you're really like at this point as for every startup, it's not about product. It's really like getting somebody to trust you to lower down their walls just long enough to give you their attention. And that's like the inherent problem. Um, so when we look at channels, you know, I look at things that are probably like outside of the traditional scope, um, everything from like scraping Facebook group members and like DMing them through Facebook, driving people to like market research survey, which is essentially disguised as a lead qualification form. Um, and we come up with these like hacky things and scrappy ways to kind of like get people's attention to one, self-qualify in different ways to uh, see if they're going to be a viable fit for your, for your product or service. Um, I use this example a lot of times, which is like, don't worry about, you know, what's scalable, try to figure out how to do it in a non-scalable way. And it could be something where it's like, look, if I'm trying to target, you know, affluent moms in, in, in the rich community, um, because I'm selling some kind of like, you know, consumer good to teenagers, I might want to have somebody stand outside of a yoga studio between the hours, like 11 to 3 PM. Right. Or if I'm trying to target general contractors, I might have somebody stay outside of a Home Depot during the weekdays. Right. So there's just little things like that where you can find those digital communities um, in terms of like what the what the physical version of that might look like. But you just want to find out where they live, sleep, eat, breathe, either online or offline. And then you can find the scalable ways to reach them. You know, Chris, that's real interesting stuff. And, and you know, that story of you guys driving up and down the coast is certainly scrappy, you know. I, I came from a world of sales a while back where scrappiness was picking up the phone and calling people, the old cold calls. Is that still a viable channel at all? And where do you stand on 
on picking up the phone and making dials. Cold calls by itself is dead. Cold calls is part of a sequence, makes a ton of sense. And I'll give you an example. I was working with this company. Um, well, I'm still working with them, but they're a mucker portfolio company. They're basically a marketplace connecting. Uh, it's kind of like commercial kitchen appliance appliances. So people who own them, like primarily restaurants, and then people who repair them, right? And they match them together. Um, so they need to get a lot of these repairmen and these companies uh, as customers uh, onto that side of the marketplace. Um, we did this exercise where they knew cold calls was, was working, but it was just like a sheer volume game and it's very difficult because the connect rate's very low. So what we instituted was ringless voicemail. Ringless voicemail is essentially like a robocall or a voicemail drop, but there's a little bit of an art to it. So how we did it was we, we didn't say directly that we were, a cust we were looking to be a customer, but we poised it in a way that was generic enough where the recipient thought that it's a potential for it to be a customer. And then ultimately we got a ton of callbacks when we just did a cohort of hundred ended up with like 30 callbacks. He was able to turn five of those into demos um, off of that callback. So obviously it depends on who's gonna receive those calls, but that's a separate issue. The first issue is to get people to respond, right? And so that's what we solved for originally. And then the second part is to solve for the messaging of like what happens when you get that response. And you mentioned multiple channels um, prior. Are you, are you, is it a good idea to, to track those opportunities across those channels and then, um, yeah. and then be able to attribute to where the needle is being moved? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, for sure. So, okay, so let's just think about this, right? Like, let's just say your target audience, there's 10,000 total accounts in the US that, that could become potential customers of yours. So how we think about it is, let's just, let's, let's just divide 10 by, by 10, okay? So that equates to cohorts of 1,000 each, and you have 10 cohorts, right? So what we would do is put a single cohort through a very intensive sales sequence that might leverage anywhere from five to seven different channels, over a one to two week period. And then we give them a break for like eight weeks. And then you're cycling through a new cohort every week. And then you're going back to cohort one and week 11. Does that make sense? So no. the idea is over 10 weeks, your social proof will have evolved. Your product will have evolved. So the logos that you've gotten is gonna be different. You're gonna be able to have different types of messaging to highlight and to go back to a different type of sequence, right? To different type of messaging. <laughs> Focusing on, again, like on, on converting. Um, I know a lot of people do this, which is like, they want to automate the entire sequence as quickly as possible. Uh, for me, like, I don't think that's necessarily the smartest idea. I think you want to figure out which channels actually work best for you. Um, but you want to try a lot of different things in the very beginning. So how we'll do it is like manually in this fragmented way, we will take a cohort of, let's just say a thousand, and we'll push them through a LinkedIn ad request on day one, email on day two, ringless voicemail on day three, SMS text on day four, LinkedIn DM now that you have the time for the time delay for the actual ad to request to be accepted, to then do a LinkedIn DM on day five, email two on day six, maybe another cold call to anybody who's clicked or, or expressed interest in any kind of intent-based format on day seven, et cetera. You kind of get the point, but um, the idea here is to start understanding which channels actually get you the responses and then more importantly, which ones get you the more positive responses. Um, and we found that the first goal is to just to get responses. It doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. You want to figure out what's going to get you responses. And then it's the next step is figuring out how do you elicit positive responses? And then after that, from positive response, how do you get them booked into a meeting? And then how do you get them booked to actually show up? There's these, all these little nuanced steps. And a lot of times what I see is like founders will think of it like just focus on the output, which is like, how do I get more demos? And it's not just about that. Um, you really have to think about all those little steps because each of those things has its own set of variables that's going to impact the output. It's so funny because it's all of this sounds a lot like, like website optimization because in a way it's almost the same thing. You're, you're trying to attract a group of people from like point A to click on your calendar link at point B. And then yeah. most people focus on point, point B, they miss like 8.1, 8.2, 8.3, all the things in between. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting, Chris. That, that's a real interesting cadence that you're you're uh, you're talking about, and, and you know, you, you've talked a little bit about messaging, and something that I'm really you know interested in is how words and just kind of changing this and that can really have a huge impact. How does the message change throughout that cadence that you're that you're talking about, and and what are you focused on? Are you focused on you know the pain? of the customer you focus on the solution that you're providing or kind of a combination of the two i'm curious to hear a little bit about that yeah so i think it totally depends on the size and the stage of the company right if you have brand awareness and brand equity you've got thought leadership written all over your content like you know you can go directly into the roi driven type of campaigns um even when we do that i would say i try to bucket the messaging into three different categories so the first bucket is going to be focused on like education heavy. This is not worrying about getting them to respond, but like, let's just say it's a two week sequence over nine days, right? Those first three days, no matter the channel, it's going to be all education focused. What pain point are you solving? How are you solving it? Why are you guys the people to solve it? Um, the second is then going to be focused on the call to action, right? And that should be very simple, direct in terms of what the ask is that you want from them. So whether it's a five minute phone call, 10 minute, 10-minute discovery call, 30-minute demo, whatever it's going to be. And typically, you want to drill that down to like one to two sentences. And then if it's an email, for example, you want to take the body of, of the original email and use it as a point of reference. And a simple example would be like, hey, just wanted to follow up on the below email. Would love to pick your brain for five to 10 minutes. Let me know if you got some time. And they have that point of reference now to then. And if you think about it from the receiving end, I'm sure you've gone through this multiple times where you're kind of like, oh, this is now kind of important because they're following up. Um, and then the last bucket is going to be focused on objection categorization or tracking. For us, an objection, especially for earlier stage companies, is equally important if you can capture the data over time as to the reason why people are not moving forward in the sales process, right? So it could be as simple as, you know, look, this is something we know that's important. We want to, we want to get to this, but we don't have the time circle back in three months. Um, or it could be something where it's like, you're missing a, a product feature or a function that we need, or we're happy with a competitor. Um, we, we dumb it down where we'd literally just be like, I'm sure you're super busy. Here's five pre-populated responses. Just let us know which one is the reason for you. And you'll be surprised, but like 50% of the time they're responding back with that option of like, Hey, we are really busy, but circle back in three months. Yeah, I think people forget that objections are engagement, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. that's true. It's an opportunity. Yeah, it's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Peter, do you want to ask a couple questions? Yeah, so we have a couple questions from um, the audience there. Um, as first question by uh, David Libby, as part of the sequence, what have you found to be the most valuable kind of content to give away? Anything that establishes thought leadership in the sense that um, – you're providing something of value that's going to allow your target audience to be better at their job within 10, 15 minutes after reading it. And I think like a good example of that would be like gong.io. They do a really great job for the sales community. What, what if some of that content is not directly tied to your value proposition as a, as a company? Is that a little too long tail or does that just show that you're leading with value and solving problems for the prospect first? Yeah. I, I don't think it has to deal with your value proposition at all. Like, um, you know, for example, I circulated with you guys like that growth playbook that we generated for Mucker Capital and Andreessen's portfolio companies uh, for the LA Tech Week event, right? That's, it's a great tool. It's essentially like everything that I've learned, actionable items and, and tasks of like and the tools that we use. And if somebody wants to take it and run with it, they could totally do so. Um, and it gives them that toolkit to do it, right? But at the same time, it also identifies to me, like these are people who ultimately have issues filling their pipeline. So it's also lead magnet for us. Um, so I think about it in that context, right? Which is, hey, if you wanna run with it, great. I give you like, I'm giving you hundred percent of the information, but lo and behold, like 90% of the time, people will just go hire the expert, right? And that's more of like a way to build that trust. I wanna add something in there too, because. Uh, so um, this is especially true if you're if you're um, trying to speak to a community, um, giving the right type of content will kind of just let you know that you know your audience, you know exactly what their pain points are, and if you're able to provide like free nuggets of not even nuggets, just a whole meal of value. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and with dessert too, right? With dessert, sure, why not? <laughs> if you're able to do that and to show your the community that like you're like you're more focused on helping them versus actually making money, then yeah. I think one, you build you you will build that credibility and your uh, and your clients will want to come to you just because they know that you're here to help them versus actually just hiding your your, your pocketbook. Right. Yeah, and I think that like you know you guys talked about messaging. I mean, I think especially now in the B2B space, like since the pandemic, I mean, this is just kind of my hypothesis, but I feel like the sales and marketing game for B2B has just completely evolved and changed forever. Like it's, it's never going to be the same again. And the reason is like, you know, you're invited into my home right now, right? Like I'm invited to somebody's home. I'm imagining like we're seeing kids running in the backgrounds, pets coming around. Like it's business is now personal and, and personal is now business. Right. So I think the ideas of empathy, compassion, these are words that I, I don't use loosely and they've become even more important, uh, more relevant in whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's from content perspective, messaging perspective, sensitivity to people's time, time is money, time is extremely valuable. Um, anything ROI wise too, like your language that you're talking about in the B2B world, traditionally ROI means like it's gonna be a product that's improving top line revenue or you know, drastically improving bottom line margins somehow, whether it's like, you know, displacing a role or actually like saving time. But the real human ROI of that is like, you're going to be improving the ability that a family can provide, you know, for themselves, or you're going to provide time that allows that individual to go back to spend more quality time with their family. So I think we have to get back to the root of like what ROI really means. And it's not just about numbers anymore. No, I totally agree with you. And I, I often think about there's kind of like three levels of the problem. You know, the first level is what they tell you the problem is. Yes. The second level is the problem that that cre actually creates in the business. And the third level is that one that you're talking about. That's the le that's the problem that it creates in my life, right? Which will get them to action. And if you can action. get down into that third level, yeah. that gets people urgent and motivated. Yeah. And that messaging thing is, I'm telling you, it's, it's, I mean, it's hokey, but how I generate messaging is based on emotional triggers. So every, like every audience, like if you're targeting, for example, IT engineers, what's going to pull on their emotional heartstrings is very different from a sales and marketing person, which is going to be very different from somebody in ops versus somebody in finance and accounting. Right. And so just knowing your personas on that granular level is super important. And you want to ultimately get to a place where you can, if you can get like a question where it helps them identify that pain point and gets that head nod or lean in within like five to 10 seconds, because you've learned exactly how to say it in a way that they are dealing with it. That's the most critical thing. And I'll give you an example is like, I was working with a company that sells into pediatric offices. And this was at the start of the pandemic. They had just let go of like 80% of their sales and marketing team. Cause they didn't know necessarily you know, where the market was going to go. Um, and so they had hired us because we could, you know, do the work and they wanted to focus back on just output, which is mid funnel output. Um, we spent about two weeks time just researching that target persona. And we found out in a lot of these Facebook groups where these pediatricians are super active and highly engaged that they're literally doing two times the amount of work for the same amount of pay. Because now all of a sudden patient care and patient time has gone from 15 minutes to 30 minutes. So we did a direct call out in those, in those email sequences saying, I know you're super busy. I know you're, you're exhausted. We've been in the Facebook groups and I know that you're doing two times the amount of work for the same amount of pay. Look, if there was something that could actually help you alleviate that pain point around time management, while providing better quality care to your patients, is that something that you'd be interested in talking more about or learning more about? And it made, it, we ended up with a record quarter in terms of the number of SQLs we were able to generate for them. Um, that's a good example. I mean, we've actually done direct callouts where it's like, if we got a list from a client or a customer from Zoom Info, I'll directly say like, hey, sorry to bombard your email. I got your contact information from Zoom Info. If you do not know that you're on a Zoom Info contact list, Here's the unsubscribe the way that you can unsubscribe. Yeah. Wow. That's and you, don't, you don't even understand like shit like that works. You know, people appreciate yeah. transparency, honesty, and, and authenticity. Oh, no doubt. Like no trust. Yeah. <laughs>
Like no trust. Yes. So second question, um, what do you think about using influencers to get to your target? I it can help for sure because it's like if their audience trusts them for whatever it is that, that their influencer in, sure, it helps you bridge that gap. I think you'd have to be very selective around the influencer though, right? Like an influencer that has a million following doesn't necessarily mean that a million people are going to buy something for them. Let alone also, you need to understand what category do they actually have influence over, right? So I think a lot of times what works best would be actually working with the influencer to understand who their target demographic is and understanding what that demographic is willing to actually make a purchase on based is, on what, is what Rad did. Can you speak a little bit? Yeah, to so I, um, I, yeah, I, I can give some insight into this because um, back before, even before like Rad and before where we met at 360, I actually ran an influencer marketing agency myself. Um, there, there's essentially two ways you could play this game as well. There's, the, um, there's an influencer, there's the influencer way and the community way. With the influencers, I found out that it, instead of finding, like you said, you're exactly right, Chris, instead of finding one like Alison, Addison Ray or one Kabe Lame who has like about 15, million followers on TikTok, if you if you took that money and ended up getting like an army of let's say tier three influencers that are about like 10 20 30k with a very high engagement rate like with a 30 or 40 percent engagement rate engagement rates are typically higher on TikTok. um there you could get a lot more uh like return just because you're the short the smaller your influencer size, the more connected they are with their with their community. It's it's it just because it's hard to just be so connected to your community when you have about a million followers. Like it's at some point you it's just gets so overwhelming. Mm. Um, but on the flip side, if um, a, another good one is instead of finding influencers, is also to find brand advocates. Um, so if you're a, if you are tapped into a community, let's say for example, like Facebook groups, if you go into Facebook groups and you provide so much value to the community itself, uh, people will go to that for you naturally. So one, one path costs money. The other path costs time. What, what, what about like a, a deep fake avatar of a super mega influencer that their fans could connect with? I mean, sure, that'd be awesome. It just has to go past average. With AI, AI written messaging? Yeah, I guess probably not. <laughs> no, I mean, genuine, right? And their fans want the real deal. Yeah. It could, I mean, if it, if it, if it, pull, if you pull it off and it passes Turing test, awesome. But just know that, like, once it gets detected by an AI detection, then you know yeah. your credibility is going to tank. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of interesting um, in regards to what Facebook is trying to do with the augmented reality and the VR glass Oculus. It's like, if, if you're gonna be engaging with somebody in the metaverse, well, that should be tied back to a real uh, real profile. Like, otherwise, like, how do you know you're dealing with somebody who's, who's actually saying who they are, you know? True. That's a whole wormhole there. Yeah. Identity verification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you sell that? <laughs> Um, so, uh, so you went to school at Pepperdine and New York University, arguably two of the coolest schools on the respective coast. Yeah, what did amazing. you What did you take from those uh, from those years, those experiences that you were able to uh, able to bring to your your career and your profession now, Chris? I mean, I flunked at NYU, so like <laughs> that was uh, probably not. I had a little scrappy and scrappy, super scrappy. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, I would say that I just wasn't ready for, for school at that point in time. Um, I ended up again, flunking out basically because I didn't go to classes. Um, you know, I found out like later that I probably have like ADD, uh, which probably wasn't the best thing. Uh, and then I ended up working full time for like a couple of years before going back to school to finish my undergrad degree at Pepperdine. And I did that while I was working full time. Um, but that was just much better suited, I think, for me. I, I, I learn a lot better in a real-world environment. Um, and the same thing with growth marketing for me. Like, everything has just been very scrappy, just kind of like I've been to those positions where, you know, super dark moments where back's against the wall, been broke more than more times I can count, where you really got to, like, figure your crap out, you know, in order for you to, like, 
make a living. And uh, yeah, I think you get really creative in those types of moments. Yeah, well, I mean, now you now you just closed a big round a couple days before Thanksgiving. So now you you can uh, you can afford to to try more campaigns and maybe test out the market. Um, so that's uh, tell us a little bit more about how you're uh, how you're connecting buyers and sellers with uh, with your with LearPro. Sure. Um, I mean, so th- I'm a three time founder, right? Did online textile rentals. I did like a Airbnb for beauty space. And now I, I have, I have leader pro, which is essentially it's like a, it's like an, imagine like a dating app for B2B sales. Like that's the easiest way I can put it. Um, we essentially like match as a marketplace, the seller side with the buyer side of software. Um, the buyer is financially motivated. So they get paid to participate in demos. Uh, and then the seller pays on a per, uh, per meeting basis that's completed. So think of also like a G2 or Captera. Uh, but instead of a PPC model, we're a paper meeting model. Um, so the caveat to all that is just to make sure before the meeting that on paper, they are very strongly aligned in terms of expectations and what they're going into that meeting about, right? Um, so that's taking something that we've been doing for the past three years as a growth marketing agency. Um, again, a way to kind of cut through the noise where you're seeing it a lot of the times now, which is doing this incentive approach. Um, that was a very easy way for us to get an eight to 10 X higher response rate from anything that we could ever see best performing wise from ROI driven campaign. Um, and we spent the last three to four years figuring out all the nuanced steps of getting people to actually end up showing up to that and then providing feedback post demo where it's like, are you actually moving forward in the sales motion or are you objecting? And if so, why, um, providing that level of transparency and visibility, which essentially is unheard of in, in a lot of the B2B sales world. Um, again, equating it back to the dating analogy, it's like you can do five demos or go on five dates and think it goes really, really well and end up getting ghosted all five times. And the natural psychology of things is that we go to the worst case scenario, right? When in reality, it could be something as simple as like, look, your breath stinks, but you're a really charming person. And so you could solve for something as simple as that, which is like chewing gum. You go on that six date, six meeting, and it exponentially increases your chances of like moving that date forward. Same thing in a B2B sales and marketing world. And that's how we see it. It's so thank you for that's an awesome answer. You know, we always like to uh, build connections and create value where we can, especially within our community. And there's a, a gentleman named Avi Tesler who runs a company called Eat Engage. And that is the ability for a, a meal of your choosing to arrive about 10 minutes before you've agreed to a demo, uh, yep. like a Zoom, for example. So I think that would be an awesome way, uh, connection for you if you're if you're keen for a connection there uh, or an introduction, Chris. Totally um, totally um, so, and also, it might be a good idea, like if, if anybody in the audience wanted to wanted to hop up and ask a question for two, Chris. There's two more co- um, combat questions. Okay, perfect. Let's, let's, go, yeah. let's get to those. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. So, um, Question, how are you tracking data slash information slash documents across multiple uh, platforms as part of the sequence? How are you what? Tracking? How are you tracking uh, the data, the information, and the documents across multiple platforms as part of the sequence? Yeah, so it just depends on which channels end up working well for you, right? Like if it's just, you know, email, LinkedIn, you know, DMs, I mean, there's plenty of tools that allows you to track across those two channels. Uh, but if you're starting to do things like ringless voicemail or cold calling and SMS, et cetera, it's a little bit more complicated in terms of automation. We would use something like a Twilio after you do validate the fact that it works. Um, there's more like, you know, manual tools out there like slide broadcast or like text magic that allows you to do it manually just to kind of like experiment with those channels before you go ahead and, and start, you know, automating the whole thing. Um, and then tracking an attribution is something that we've actually had to deal with on leader pro side. Um, Google tag manager, for example, is just poor at attribution because of, of the cookie issue. Uh, so we have to internally create our own tracking IDs now. Um, and so, that's how we're managing attribution across all so, these channels. So that's, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, right? In fact, that's a very similar challenge to what we're solving with unity central because salespeople have all these different streams of data, maybe social or text or an email or PDF or what have you. And so it's all unstructured, structure being like it lives in Excel or something. So essentially what we've done is create an operating system or or a digital workspace that can make these, this, this data actionable 
um, in bringing all this in it and making sense of it too. So pretty, pretty interesting approach uh, to, uh, to knowledge management. Um, so, and then Peter, you said there was another question. As yeah. Well. So Chris, you mentioned Twilio. Uh, do you have any other favorite automation platforms? Uh, you know, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of automation. Like I think there's so, until you kind of get to like doing anywhere, you know, I think like 10 million plus in ARR, like I really don't think it's, it's worth automating yet. Um, I just see too many like early stage companies smaller than that size, just struggle on their go to market motions because they cannot iterate fast enough. And then they'll actually, you know, shut down channels because they think it doesn't work when in reality they haven't tested the unique variables in, in, in making it work. Um, but when you're talking about, you know, automation, like outside of Twilio, I mean, I think like SendGrid is great. There's things like, you know, reply.io, there's, you know, Apollo.io nowadays, outreach, et cetera. There's a lot of different tools that allow you, allows you to automate. I think the, the, the thinking there though nowadays is like, even if you use a HubSpot for automation, um, Gmail is getting really good. And I, I'm sure like other email sending solutions are getting really good at like tracking spam. And so unless you have authority over your own IP addresses that you're sending out from, your chances are going to be ending up in spam filters. And so that's like, that's the thing too, with a lot of these automation tools is that you're, uh, you don't have a lot of control over that. And then Stephanie, why don't you come ask a, a question here for, uh, for Chris with Conscious Conversations. This is kind of a, this is kind of a fun thing. Um, we've got Stephanie, our intern here. So Stephanie, you wanna, you wanna ask the, one of these here? Step what we're gonna do here. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Uh, well, it's essentially uh, deeper questions that are not, not business, but kind of more focused around like the human being. Oh, do soulmates exist? Do soulmates exist? Do soulmates exist? That's a heck of a question. Uh, Chris, do you want to start start that one off for us, uh, especially since your partner has taught you empathy? Yeah. Um, I definitely believe soulmates exist. I didn't get it right the first time in my first marriage, but I think I got it right this time around with my fiance now. Um, she She's definitely been instrumental in me learning those two fundamentals of empathy and compassion. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I found a lot of my uh, exponential professional growth over the past like four to five years um, when I met her six years ago. So. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I, I remember there was, uh, mm -hmm. uh, who, who's the guy that directed, it was Coppola that directed The Godfather, right? Yep. So he was talking to a bunch of younger directors. Sorry, who? Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola. I'm just yeah, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, how can we be a great director like you? And he said, go find an incredible partner. And once you have that, you'll never work harder. So I love the fact that it provides that that foundation to be able to get to the next level of something that I've experienced as well with my wonderful wife, Sandra, sitting in her kitchen right here. So I think it's yeah. super important. You know, you want to find somebody who's going to cheer you on, support you, especially in the hard times, because it's going to be hard. Um, and be able to be transparent. Good question. It's the card. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely think soulmates exist, especially if I go to Korea. So, so it's the capital. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the antithesis. Contrarian. I, I, I don't think soulmates exist in the sense of that. There's just this person out there that you're gonna met, meet, and everything's gonna come together, and everything's gonna be, you know, oh, we're meant to be together. I think you find your soulmate through developing trust and experience and raising kids and having, you know, successes and failures. And over time you build that. So, so I, I, it's, a conscious decision. it's a conscious decision and a process that you take and a, really a decision that you make every day. Conscious decision from conscious conversations. Yeah. I don't, yeah. 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 So don't know if my wife's on the, uh, <laughs> no, I think the train, I, but, uh, what a great you. answer, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> 10 out of 10. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the contrarian approach. And I mean, you guys have been married for, for 20 plus time. years. Yeah. 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 And raised, uh, raised some beautiful boys yeah. and who were in a you know, successful marriage. So not over yet. Yeah. Yeah. Not done yet. <laughs> Did you find one or two or many soulmates or just one? I suppose, you know, you could find multiple ones if you wanted to. 
you know? In different areas. Yeah, yeah. As long as you get approval, right? Well, there's also, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know. It's like yeah, you no. have your soulmate, like uh, with the partner that you are going to be like uh, associate to do a work that is going to long, is long term, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I agree. It's, you bring up an interesting point. Like soulmates, we often think about our romantic relationship, yeah. right? When you think about, you know, people that you've worked with, particularly founders, right? I mean, that are working together and, and building something, you know, are there, is there a soulmate for a founder? Like, is that perfect founder exists out there and that's, we that's find it together question. and we're going to, you know, build the next huge unicorn just because we're soulmates? So, so Crystal, along that, along that thread, what have you seen really work well with co-founders? Because I mean, you've seen a, a ton of yeah. startups and teams. So what, what do you see working there? You know, um, I mean, a lot of times it's not even about product. Like I would say most of the times they have a great product, really smart people. I think like in an advisory role, I feel like I'm playing therapist most of the time, which is yeah. really trying to get them to overcome whatever it is that their personal blocker is. A lot of times it's ego, fear. Uh, those are probably the biggest two things that I deal with. Um, and how do you get somebody to not take it so personally? And you have to kind of like, it's a very like touchy, touchy subject, but how do you get somebody to start pulling on the motions that you know is going to yield results uh, without them like, yeah, trying to battle it. I mean, I've had founders where they just, will continue by brute force trying to squeeze a square peg into a round hole and, and over and over again. And obviously, you know, you, you get to that, that outcome that you expected um, and we're in terms of like they, they shut down or to go back to their, their backup jobs or whatever it might be. Um, the ones that I found to be the most successful founders has always been the ones that had the most amount of humility. They always ask a ton of questions they're never thinking that they're the smartest person in the room. They're, they're the most humble people that I've ever met. Um, I'm talking about founders of like unicorns, founders of post-seed companies, founders of, you know, startups that have yet to raise anything and are completely bootstrapped, but cash flow positive. Those are, the, those are the ones I see time and time again, where that recurring theme of humility is really, really important. It certainly changed from like the, the Steve Jobs style rule with an iron fist kind of leader. I mean, I think there's still a, a place for that in, in certain places, you know, in certain maybe industries. I think um, <laughs> I definitely think it's it's changed a lot. Right. Like, I mean, if you look at Elon, for example, the way that he took over Twitter, I mean, I feel like he did the iron fist approach and you're seeing how that culture has shifted since that's happened it's just a different time and place, you know, and it, it may have worked. It may have been something that, that, that accelerated and motivated people like back in that, like, you know, hustle porn culture, you know, back in, in, in that time of Apple. But like, I don't know if that necessarily works nowadays if you're quoting like Alexis Sohanian, right. From like Reddit. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so we're, we're, uh, we're about ready to, to wrap, but it'd be awesome to, hear a little bit more about your experience uh, in, in screenwriting and working with Lionsgate in, in Hollywood. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, all right. So, I mean, like, the thing I wanted to do as a kid was I always wanted to make a movie somehow, right? And, and uh, I just remember watching movies as a kid in the living room and, like, getting, getting an uh, emotional response. Like, I would feel like, you know, goosebumps, et cetera, right, from an amazing acting performance or something. So I wanted to be involved in that somehow, shape, or form. I was so opposite of that when I started from finance. Uh, but what switched it was my, my dad was diagnosed with stage four colon rectal cancer when I was 19 years old. Um, he ended up squeezing 10 years of life out of that experience. When he was originally diagnosed, they gave him like six months to a year to, to live. Um, so we were very fortunate to have that. But it made me reevaluate my life. And I just kind of like... And it's ever, ever since then, same, same trajectory where it's just like, look, life's too short to kind of like sit behind a desk doing something you hate. And so I ended up just going and, and ended up in entertainment, not knowing how the hell I was going to do it or what I was going to do. Um, you know, one thing before I ended up making that movie that I ended up selling to Lionsgate was like, 
I had a sports talk show with Billy Bob Thornton and IMG Sports associated nice. to a production deal uh, with Major League Baseball Network tied to it right before their cable launch, which was geared up to be the biggest cable launch in, in history, like 60 million households or something like that. I remember riding high in my mid, mid-20s, I was probably like mid to late 20s, like having pieced this thing together um, over like a six-month period. I was at Sundance with a partner of mine, the, the company that I was at, and I was sitting next to like Chris Rock and John Krasinski and, and these A-list people, and we're like at screenings. And I was just riding high, you know? And I get a call while I'm at Sundance from the producer over at IMG saying that the plug was pulled because they just did a record deal with Bob Hostis as a Bob Costas as a host. And yeah. uh, and that I at that moment it it tipped something in me where I was like, you have no control over this. You, you it's completely subjective at this point. And so, you know, all that all that hard work, uh, pitching and, and refining the pitches, et cetera, to get to that point just got all pulled from underneath me. Um, and so wow. I kind of like backwards engineered, I was like, I'm gonna give this one last ditch effort. I want to make a movie. I want to accomplish that childhood dream. So I reverse engineered it. And I feel like that was my first growth hack was like, all right, I want to be, I want to sell a movie. How am I going to do it? So I did it very different than a traditional, probably like screenwriter, director, producer would do it. I didn't look at the art of it all. I just looked at what people were buying. And at that time was like found footage movies, right? Like paranormal activity was like the story that was like $10,000 to like, 10 million in opening box office, right? So, um, so that's what I looked at. And, and, and ultimately, lo and behold, I shot a movie in five days for $8,000 doing an activity that, you know, I was doing with my, my ex-wife at the time and, and my buddies that we would go looking around, driving around Hollywood and, and look up like famous murders and haunted areas and just freak ourselves out. And uh, found footage was essentially what if you ended up at a house where, you, you, it was abandoned and you end up getting inside, you end up being locked inside. Wow. Um, and that was it. And, and ended up like uh, pitching it to, I created a trailer off of it and then pitched it around. We, we got some pretty big distribution studios behind us and showing interest. Uh, Lionsgate was the one that offered us a minimum guarantee that essentially I was profitable off of that guarantee um, as long as I could deliver the film. And um, that's what I took. So, so do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I've got a lot of thoughts on it, man. I, I think I am scared of ghosts. I believe in that. I think that the idea of if we're, um, if we leave this earth unintentionally, I think it's possible that our energy lingers behind somehow. I don't know if it's a ghost or whatever it's going to be, but I think energy is very powerful. Um, yeah, who knows? Well, all, all salespeople are afraid of ghosting. Man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that's fantastic, um, Chris. This has been such an, an enjoyable chat, and uh, I feel like we've we've really learned quite a bit about the, the sales engine as well. We'd we'd love to have you back, but thank you, thank you so much for for joining us today. For sure, and you know, again, like if if anybody wants to gather these resources of things that I've learned, I mean, they can go to my website. They can, I'm sure they can get it from 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 you guys as well, but you know, I'm pretty open source around everything that I've learned. If I can help somebody shortcut in any shape or form, I'm happy to do so. Yeah, I've been great. that guy that's been on the couch with a great idea that just had no idea how to execute. So uh, I'm happy to help anybody who's been in that position or who is in that position. Well, thank, yeah, thank you for being so gracious. And in fact, anybody who's watching this and wants to scan the QR code in the top left-hand corner, uh, that'll download uh, right, right up here. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. that'll. Uh, it, that'll get you on the subscriber list for uh, for brain food, and so we'll definitely put uh, put your content right there. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely put uh, put the link up there. So as as we uh, as we wrap up today, how can our be how can our community be valuable to you? Who's the ideal buyer in what vertical, and what is their title, and how can they get in touch with you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're for the leader pro side, I mean. You know, we, we've been growing pretty fast here, um, fortunately, but I think it's anybody who is consuming software or makes software in the workplace. Like that's really our, our, our market. Um, mm -hmm. We're just really doing our job of like matching both sides. We're very narrow focused right now and just like the enterprise space. 
so the large part of our, our buyer side or our demand side as we prefer to it is like VP level or higher, you know, at, at enterprise type companies. And we've got some great logos like Lyft and, and Tesla and um, head of these types of departments of, of Meta, DocuSign, et cetera, um, on the platform. And so if you're trying to sell into those types of companies, that's where, you know, ultimately uh, as a seller on the platform, you could, you could definitely leverage our community on there. Beautiful. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Chris Shang. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday and we'll have more of the best brains in the Bay. And just another quick shout out from the Codex. If you need to get your dreams off the ground, they started 25 bucks an hour and done some great work. That's in the codex.com. And until next Tuesday, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Of course. There we go. Cool. <laughs> 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 yeah.